This morning's text will be another passage of scripture intent on challenging our preconceptions and our misconceptions. It's going to challenge the songs we sing. We, we three kings is not a uh, accurate description of this text. It will challenge your holiday decorations. Like if you want a more accurate nativity scene, go ahead and set the manger and the shepherds on your mantle, but box up your wise men and send them to a cousin in Richmond, Virginia, because that's about how far away they were. And for that matter, it would be no great tragedy if one of them broke in the process because we don't know that there were three. There might have been two. There might have been 32. We, we just don't know how many. There was more than one. Um, the text of Matthew 2 will challenge how you see the world you live in today. When you turn on the news and you see reports of wicked warriors storming villages in Israel and slaughtering children, it is an echo of the events of Matthew 2. It's not going to be specifically part of our text today, but when we get down to verses 16 through 18, the village of Bethlehem is overrun by soldiers butchering infants. So when you start to look at the news and you think, what has the world come to today? I assure you it has come to exactly what it has always been. Our world is the kind of world that Jesus entered into and that wickedness is why he has come. More importantly, this passage will challenge us about our dedication to worship. Modern Christians seem unwilling to travel too far or be inconvenienced too much to worship the Lord Jesus. And when they do bother to come, they go expecting an experience designed to cater to them and satisfy them. But the Magi came in an act of true worship intent on giving and not getting. So I ask for your attention this morning as we read the text of God's word and examine that text to consider the Magi, the Messiah, and your worship. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding 
great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here to worship you, and we ask that you would help us to examine our hearts, that our worship would be acceptable to you, that it would be focused on you, that you would be the the content of what we say and of what we sing, and that you would be the focus of all that we say and do. That, Lord, we would bring glory to you by coming into your presence with joy and with humility and with an intent to bring a sacrifice acceptable to you. Please forgive us of our sins, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before diving too deep into the beginning of Matthew 2, I want to remind you briefly of what we've learned from chapter 1. From the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, we learn that what follows is aimed at proving that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham received the promise that in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. David received the promise that his distant son would assume the throne and rule and reign forever. And then immediately we read the genealogy in chapter 1 in which our dear brother Matthew has laid out for us the legitimate claim Jesus has on the throne of David. But Matthew is not content to simply prove that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He wants it to be clear that Jesus is the son of God. And so he records the birth of Jesus to show that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And now as we open chapter two, Matthew has not shifted gears to some other topic. He is continuing this same line of thought. The story naturally flows together. You have a young child in Bethlehem who is God in the flesh and he deserves to be worshiped. He alone is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He's king and he deserves to be recognized. And so how is it that the world will receive him? You know, there is a beautiful nativity story to be told. Matthew knows this story. Luke is the one who records it for us that on the night of Jesus' birth, there were angels singing praises. There are shepherds that are drawn to be witnesses of this newborn lamb of God. There is the story of how there was not room for Mary and Joseph. They were relegated to a, a, a stable, how the baby Jesus was born there and laid in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Have you ever wondered why Matthew skips over all of that? It's because his purpose is simply this. The seed of Abraham has come so that all nations can be blessed. God in the flesh has come and he is worthy of worship. 
The son of David has come, the rightful king, and he deserves to be recognized. So Matthew skips ahead to give us this account of men who are from those nations who are coming with the intent of worshiping the Lord Jesus and even claiming to know him as the rightful king. And this wicked world will not willingly allow such worship and recognition and glory of the Lord Jesus. The resistance against Messiah King Jesus begins with a man who claimed to be king. Look again at verse one, the birth now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Matthew spent a chapter proving that Jesus is king and then opens chapter two telling us about the man who would be king. He calls this man Herod the king. We have come to know him historically as Herod the Great. A little political history will help us understand this title, how he has the title king a little bit better. And we know that the the Roman Empire had conquered Judea at this point in time that was occupied by the Roman army. But during this time frame, Rome broke up its empire into provinces. Think of them as equivalent of states for the United States. They'd broken up their empire into provinces so that they could set a ruler over each province to oversee it. And those rulers would answer to the emperor. Sometimes those rulers are called governors. So later on in the Gospels, we see Pontius Pilate, who was a governor of Judea. A governor was often a native of Rome who had been sent out to some province that he was unfamiliar with. And he was sent there for a short period of time until he got moved to another uh, province or until he was just replaced by another governor. It's a temporary job. But sometimes Rome would appoint a a local ruler and allow him to have the title of king. Today we call them client kings. Kings were not given temporary appointments. If you were a client king for Rome, it was a lifetime appointment. And so Herod legitimately calls himself in the eyes of Rome, the king of Judea. He is part Jewish, part Gentile, and 100% wicked. At the time of this account, Herod the Great had ruled Judea for about 40 years already. He's completed amazing building projects. He's even begun what would be a 46-year remodeling project on the temple so that the temple would become known as Herod's Temple. But this man is a tragic combination of cruelty and paranoia. He had his wife's brother appointed as high priest and then got jealous and had him murdered. Later, he has his wife murdered. And once his wife is murdered, he has her mother murdered. And then he murders two of his own sons because he's concerned that they want to take his power. 
Caesar Augustus famously said of Herod, I think I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And so now Herod is sick and he is nearing his own death. He knows his days are numbered, but he has everything planned out. His son, Herod Archelaus, is going to take the throne. You'll see him mentioned down in verse 22. And since Herod the Great knows that when he dies, nobody in Judea is going to mourn his death, he actually issues a command to have well-respected Jewish leaders arrested so at the moment of his death, they would be executed and the whole country would go into appropriate mourning. Herod is cruel and insane. And so when these strangers come to Jerusalem asking about the newborn king of the Jews, verse 3 tells us that Herod was troubled, literally unsettled, disturbed, alarmed, and the whole city is troubled with him. The arrival of the wise men, these foreigners from the east, showing up at Jerusalem and asking where is the one who was born king of the Jews, shows that they were possibly a little bit clueless as to the political landscape in Jerusalem under King Herod. They're not asking, where is the king? They're asking, where is the one who was born king? Born is the operative word. They're they're saying, look, someone has been born finally who has a legitimate claim to the throne of David. And they want to know where he is because the end of verse two, they've come to worship him. So we've got a little background about Herod. Let's talk for a moment about these wise men. The term Matthew uses is the term magi. And that gets translated as wise men. Now we've got plenty of misconceptions about them. Were there three of them? We don't know. The idea that there were three wise men probably comes from the three gifts described that they brought, but that really doesn't tell us anything. You could have two wise men bringing all three gifts, or you could have 10 wise men bringing gold, 10 more bringing frankincense, and another 15 bringing myrrh. We just don't know. Were they riding camels? We don't know. It's not a bad way to get across the desert. But here in a minute, I'm actually going to speculate a possibility of where they're from. And if I'm right, I think it's more likely that they showed up riding uh, Persian stallions than they did camels. Were they at the manger scene? Absolutely not. They just weren't. Their arrival at Bethlehem down in verse 11 is at least several months after the birth of Jesus and possibly up to two years, although I I don't think uh, two years is likely. Herod asks in verse 7 how long ago they'd seen the star, and later on in the chapter, he issues the command saying to kill all of the infant boys under two years old, but I'm sure in Herod's mind he's playing it safe from his perspective. My guess is the wise men arrive six months to a year after the birth of Jesus. Are they kings like the song says? 
Almost certainly not. Given the theme of Matthew in chapters 1 and 2, three kings coming and falling down to worship Jesus is not something he would have overlooked to mention that's what they were. Matthew instead uses the word magi. And he could have used much more common Greek words to describe wise men, but he opts this for this word magi. And I think it's actually a clue as to their background. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, that term magi got used in the Old Testament for the wise men and ruling class within the Babylonian Empire. Daniel, the prophet, was brought before King Nebuchadnezzar because none of Nebuchadnezzar's magi, none of his wise men could interpret his dream. Only Daniel could do it. And so I personally think that clue makes it very likely that the magi are coming from the same general area as Old Testament Babylon and Persia. And that fits with the other clues we have in the text. They are wise men from the east, which is the right direction. It takes them a considerable time to get there, which is the right distance. They, they look for and find signs in the stars, which is something the Magi were known to do. And they somehow identify this sign with the birth of the promised king of the Jews of whom Daniel had been in that area and prophesied about. No doubt many Old Testament books were still left in the Babylon and Persia area for them to uh, refer to. Now, just as a side note, this does not mean that we can condone astrology as legitimately seeking signs from the stars. Astrology is expressly forbidden in scripture. Astrology is not focused on the person and work of the Lord Jesus biblically. The concern is not what sign you were born under. It is dealing with the sin that you were born under. So God gave us the stars in order to help us tell time, in order to help us navigate, he said, but not providing daily guides to our lives. On this occasion, in his divine wisdom, God gave us miraculous and extraordinary sign to point the Magi to the Messiah. And that's perfectly fitting in that God has made all of creation for the glory of Jesus, and it will glorify Jesus. All things were made by him and for him. But on a day-to-day -day basis, God is not sending messages through the stars. He has sent his message through his son. Also, y'all, the star was not in the east. When the Magi from the east say in verse 2, we have seen his star in the east and have come, they're talking about the place that they're from, not the place that they saw the star was at. Right? What they're saying is we are from the east and while we were out there in the east, we saw the star and it has brought us here. We came here because this is the direction we saw it. If these wise men from the east saw a star in the east, it would have taken them further east. Sorry, that, that's west for y'all, isn't it? So when these Gentiles wearing strange clothes show up in Jerusalem and start repeatedly asking around town, where is the child who was just born with a legitimate claim to the throne of David? 
it causes an uproar in the city. The response they kept getting was probably as they're going about town and talking to people and talking in shops, they probably got responses like, listen, guys, I don't know what you're talking about, but I sure wish you would stop talking about it. Do you want Herod to find out? I mean, if he's willing to murder his own wife and his in-laws and his children and half the nobility of Judea, what's he going to do for us for standing around here chatting about the legitimate king of the Jews? But in verse 3, Herod finds out. Predictably, he's not happy. He's agitated. And he doesn't know what to do. And so the whole city, Matthew describes, gets agitated because they don't know what Herod's about to do. When you bring Jesus into this wicked world, it's like turning the agitator on in your washing machine. Stuff is going to get stirred up. But look at this. Even though Herod is only sort of Jewish, even he knows what it means that someone has been born king of the Jews. In verse 4, when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod didn't know yet who Jesus was, but he knew what Jesus was. He asks, where is the Christ supposed to be born? Again, always remember that word Christ in the New Testament is the equivalent of Messiah in the Old Testament. Where is the promised Messiah supposed to be born? In verse 5, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod asked his own wise men, the chief priests and scribes about the birthplace of the Messiah, they seem to easily pull out the Old Testament prophets and quickly quote Micah 5 verse 2. And I'd like you to turn there with me for a minute. Look at Micah 5 verse 2. I want you to see it, but I also don't want you to get worked up when the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament and they don't sound exactly the same. This is what happens when you're translating from and through different languages. But the Old Testament quote tells us something that I want you to see. Herod asks where the Messiah is to be born and they pull out Micah 5.2 to say Bethlehem. But Micah 5.2 says more about Jesus than just that. Micah 5 verse 2 says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, which by the way is a word that means fruitful or productive. I think it's a description of Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now Micah 5, 2 confirmed that Bethlehem is the place where the Messiah is to be born, but it's not the place where the Messiah begins. It's the place, it says, where he comes forth where he comes forward. He enters into humanity at Bethlehem in order to be the Messiah King. But Micah says his existence is from antiquity. His goings forth, his movement, his actions, what he, is, what he has done dates back to 
everlasting time of eternity past. This Messiah King who has come is the creator God who's worthy of worship. Meanwhile, Herod, that sniveling little weasel who would be king, is not worthy. He gets his answer of Bethlehem, and he's going to actually turn that answer over to the Magi, but he has a secret plot in his heart. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. It's initially a little surprising to see Herod actually gives the wise men the answer they were looking for. He tells them where to find the Messiah King, but knowing a little bit about Herod's heart and looking at verses seven and eight with the clarity of hindsight, it is evident that this pretend king has a secret two-part scheme he's got planned. Plan A is to have the wise men do his dirty work for him. I mean, none of us really thinks that Herod intended to come fall down at the feet of Jesus and worship him, do we? So when he tells the Magi, go find him and bring word so I can come worship him, what he's planning is you go and quietly locate this child for me so that it happens without raising any red flags and bring word back to me so I can send someone to execute him. Plan B, on the other hand, is just in case the Magi are unable or unwilling to locate the child for him, he coyly asks, when did the star appear? He doesn't tell them he only wants to know so he can determine the child's age. If the subterfuge of plan A works, great. But if if Herod has to resort to brute force and, and kill all of the right age children in Bethlehem, murder in order to murder the Messiah, he's willing to do that. And he does it later in the chapter. Now listen, it is not until we get to this part of the story that Matthew tells us anything at all about the star moving. Verses 9 and 10. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. The star which God had used as a divine sign for the birth of the Messiah, King Jesus, it had appeared to the Magi while they were in the east, and then it disappeared and they didn't see it again. They knew from where it was to come to Jerusalem, but once they get there, they're left searching, they're asking around. However, after being told by Herod where to go, the star reappears and now it moves and leads them precisely where to go. Verse 10 says they rejoiced greatly in order to see it again. And it leads them to Bethlehem, which is about five miles 
south of Jerusalem. Now, how did it do that? Yeah, I don't know. It's a miracle. It moved. They moved. It worked. It's like asking how the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire moved and led the Israelites through the wilderness in Exodus. It's a mystery to us. And that's not really the point of Matthew's account here. It's a distraction. And I really like this quote from John Piper. So I just want to share it with you. People, this quote, people who are exercised and preoccupied with such things as how the star worked and how the Red Sea split and how the manna fell and how Jonah survived in the fish and how the moon turns to blood are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. You do not see in them a deep cherishing of the great things of the gospel, the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the spirit, the glory of Christ's return and the final judgment. In other words, don't miss the big picture. Obviously, Matthew intends for us to know in the big picture that it is the sovereign God of the universe who created all things, including the stars, who used that star to start the wise men on their trip. And having gotten them to Jerusalem, it's God who uses the star to direct them again, not only to Bethlehem, but to the specific place in Bethlehem where the Lord Jesus can be found. Ultimately, it's still that sovereign God who warns them in verse 12 not to return to Herod. God is the sovereign mover of this story, not the star. Don't get distracted. Now, look at where Jesus could be found. In a house, verse 11 says. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The birth of the Lord Jesus, after it had taken place, Mary and Joseph did not take him and return immediately to Nazareth. And when you think about all the things that has happened in their life, all things considered, why would they want to rush back to Nazareth? They were probably glad to stay away from their hometown for a time and to remain in Bethlehem. They both have ancestral family located in Bethlehem. So they're probably staying at this point with some extended family. They're no longer relegated to a stable. They're part of a house, it says. And the star leads the wise men there to the house and it hovers somehow over the house. So they've located the place. And it's finally in verse 11 that the wise men accomplish the purpose that they've had from the very beginning. They have an opportunity to worship the Lord Jesus. What we find here tucked away at the beginning of Matthew's gospel is a good lesson for genuine worship. They worshiped, it says, with great rejoicing. They were glad to have the opportunity to be in his presence and the 
presence of Messiah King Jesus, they are exceedingly glad. Listen, you can worship when you're sad and you can worship when you're worried. You can worship when you're mourning, but the overarching emotion of worship is one of being joyful to be in the presence of Jesus. They worshiped with humble adoration. Look at verse 11. These distinguished distinguished magi fell down and worshiped him. That is, they did physically what their souls were doing spiritually. The word worship in the New Testament and the word that Matthew uses here is proscunio, which means to bow down, to do reverence. And so really Matthew is being repetitive to say that they bowed down and worshiped him. The goal of their worship was not entertainment or good feelings. They didn't come with the demand to be lifted up. The Bible teaches, humble yourselves in the eyes of the Lord and he will lift you up. They worshiped with humble adoration. They worshiped with sacrificial giving. Much has been made about the nature of the three gifts presented to the child Jesus by the Magi. There was gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's not exactly the kind of gifts that I would give, uh, you know, I'd wrap up and give to a one-year-old child. I wonder how much Calvin or Ollie would enjoy some gold and frankincense and myrrh. But these gifts were helpful, I'm sure. These are valuable gifts and they're, they're probably about to get used in order to fund this young family's run into Egypt to get away from Herod. He is about to execute plan B, the mass murderer of all the little boys in Bethlehem. And the Magi are warned not to return to him at the end of verse 12, but departed for their own country another way. And if you want to use your sanctified imagination here, this is where you kind of have to decide how many wise men do you imagine there were? Because I think escaping Herod's notice would have been relatively easy if there's two, but if there's 32, that's the harder thing to do. I do think it's likely there is a message in each of these three gifts. Gold, For Jesus is royalty, it is a gift for a king. Frankincense is this aromatic resin that's burned as incense, often in acts of worship. It is a gift emphasizing his deity, that he is God. Myrrh is a different kind of scented resin that was used as either a perfume or medicine. We see myrrh again in the gospels later when they crucify Jesus and they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. And then when he's buried, they used myrrh and aloe in order to prepare his body. It may be this gift of myrrh foreshadows from the time there's infant Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross. But that being said, I doubt those specific ideas were in the wise men's minds. Verse 11 simply says, they opened their treasures. This is is worship from the earliest worship where it was required to, to give up an animal in sacrifice to the worship of tithes and offerings to the sacrifice of our time for worship. Worship is an act of giving. 
Modern Christianity has taken this and, it's, and it has just turned it around on its head. Worship is accomplished by joyfully, humbly, sacrificially giving honor and respect from you to God. Worship is when you bow down and reverence him. Modern Christianity has turned worship into a product designed to satisfy the consumer. Listen, it's not just a matter of saying that and being like, well, those people do some things in their services. They're a little bit different. It is a question of what is the actual goal of worship? To ever worship as a means of satisfying the longing or desires of the worshiper, it is completely backward to the true purpose of worship. Worship is coming into the presence of Jesus in honor and respect of him with something to give, whether that is your time or your talent or your treasures, your joy, your your adoration, your love, you realize that everything you give to Jesus of your time and your money and your talents, you don't give to the Lord because he needs it. You give it to the Lord because he's worthy of it. The joy of worship is knowing that you have come into the presence of the Messiah King who loves you and wants more than what's yours. He wants you. And he's come for you. To the Magi, this was worth their treasure and maybe up to a year of their time to just find themselves in the presence of Messiah King Jesus. What is the opportunity to worship Jesus worth to you? It's not only worth everything you have, it is worth all that you are, all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's worth it all. Every day, every dream, every possession, every plan of your life, there is no greater joy than to fall down in rejoicing and humility before Jesus, the Messiah King, and give all of yourself to him. When you read about the Magi and the Messiah, understand there's a lesson here about your worship. Do you love the Lord Jesus to worship him like this?